So as many of you would know, since uh, the start of the year, we've been working through a, a theme that we called Simply Follow Me. And basically what we wanted to do was go back to what Jesus said when he invited the disciples to come on a journey and he, follow me, was his um, invitation. And we added the simply part because we wanted to go back to basics is really what it boiled down to. It was fishermen that Jesus first called to follow him. Um, And so the invitation to follow Jesus is actually quite a simple one. But I wanted to know, um, as I've been working through this topic um, over this couple, last couple of weeks, uh, I really felt like the Lord said to me to go and have a look at the life of somebody who knew what it meant to follow Jesus. And so as I did that, I found that it was Peter that God kept putting on my heart. And so this morning, what I want to do is actually try and work through the life of Peter and pull out some significant moments in his journey of following Jesus. Now, that's not a small task. There's a lot in Peter's life, and there's no way I could encapsulate everything about it this morning. So there's absolutely going to be bits that get missed. Let me say that from the beginning. But there's a couple of key points in Peter's journey that I want to look at this morning and how it relates to our own walk with Jesus. And so I want to start this morning by just saying, who is a disciple of Jesus? I am in this room, in this room, who is a disciple of Jesus. And I guess that's where the place I wanted to start from and go, this stuff is actually really relevant to us every day. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And so Peter knew only too well what it was like to follow Jesus from the very beginning. Um, Matthew chapter 4, verses 18. And it goes like this, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. And so Peter spent the next three years following Jesus in every way. He lived with him, he ate with him, he listened to him, he watched him and he served him. For me, I love that Peter's journey is in the Scriptures. I don't know about you, but Peter gives me the greatest encouragement out of everybody because he gets it wrong so often. Um, He's just completely real. And I love that the writers of the Gospels didn't Hollywoodize it. You know, they didn't clean it up and, and make it pretty. They let it be real. I'm so grateful for all of the times that he suffers from foot and mouth disease when he spoke or he acted without thinking, just like I do. For the times that he lets Jesus down because he doesn't have the stamina or the internal fortitude to stay the distance. For the times of celebration and the times of chastisement with Jesus. Times of victory and times of seeming defeat. But through the account of Peter's life, I've been left with a couple of resounding questions. And that is, how did he go from being the coward that denied Jesus on the way to the cross through to the man that stands up in Acts 2 and boldly preaches the gospel? How did he go from being a fisherman to being the the leader of the church in Jerusalem by the time we get to Acts chapter 2 and all in a period of about three years? That is a lot of growth right there. And so I've been wondering, Lord, if, if this is what Peter's life looked like in three years, what does that mean for me? What could I do with three years? What kind of growth could I achieve? And, and some of those kinds of questions because if there's, a, if there's some answers in that, then I want to know what they are. Because <laughs> I want to grow to be more like Jesus. As a disciple, that's my objective. And I hope that it's yours as well. And so I want to start by looking at, at lessons from Peter's life. And the first lesson is this. He was a yes man. 
Peter's first response in his heart was yes. Right from the very beginning, and he's going to pick the story up in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. And it goes like this. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gethsemane, the people were crowded around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little to shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught a large number of fish, such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signalled their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. So right from the very beginning of Peter's journey with Jesus, his answer was yes. Now, at this point, Peter had seen Jesus perform some miracles. He had healed his own mother-in-law in his house. And in the previous chapter of Luke, it says that there were many that were brought to him and healed of sicknesses and delivered from evil spirits. And as the spirits came out, they proclaimed to Jesus, you are the son of God. And now here he is, Jesus, telling Peter to let down his nets. It didn't matter to Peter that logically putting down the nets again made no sense. Jesus said it, so he did it. There was his desire to obey. Obedience to Jesus' teachings and the leading of his Holy Spirit are non-negotiables of a disciple. It's the thing that sets a disciple apart from any other relationship. It's the response of somebody that says, I trust you. You know better than I do. It comes from a place of respect and honour, even when that obedience comes at a price for the disciple. As we hold up the mirror on ourselves in this area this morning, I wonder how we're doing. Is our first response to Jesus' teaching and commands a yes? Or do we struggle to give him over that control? And as I've been preparing, I was reminded of a message that Mark brought 18 months, two years ago. And I don't know if you were in the room, you might recall that a number of us stood up and declared that we would be yes people. Yeah? I wonder how you're doing with that. This far down the track, do you still think about that moment? Has it changed your responses at all? And I feel like God just wants to re-stir that desire in us again to be yes people. For our first response to be yes. We can work out the details later. But for our heart's response to first and foremost be yes. Over time, obedience would be something that would continue to grow in Peter to the point that his obedience would ultimately lead to him being crucified upside down on a cross. But we'll get to more of that later. The second thing is that his faith was tested in order that it would grow. If you want to have a look at Matthew chapter 14, verses 22. Most of us know this passage really well. We've heard plenty of teaching on it over time. It's the one where Peter walks on water. And so verse 22 starts like this. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because of the wind against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. 
Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on water and came toward Jesus. As I've reread this passage a number of times this past week, it's Peter's faith that struck me. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. That's a pretty audacious request right there. But Peter had now seen Jesus move in power countless times, and he knew that if Jesus told him to do it, then it would actually be okay. And then he has the faith to actually step out of the boat and onto the water. We all know what happens next. He gets distracted by the wind and the waves. He takes his eyes off Jesus and he begins to sink. What a metaphor that is. But Jesus in his grace takes him by his hand and leads him back to the boat saying, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Peter didn't get an A plus on this particular test, but he didn't get an F either. He got out of the boat, which was more than the 11 others. And in the process, he learned about listening to the word of the Lord and trusting him. And as he grew in this area of faith, he chose to step out more and more. And as a result, through his own ministry, many people were healed and delivered of evil spirits. And Tabitha was even raised from the dead in Acts chapter 9. In order for faith to grow, it needs to be tested. We need to step out, to venture into new, deeper waters. Audacious questions of the Lord must be asked. And I wonder, when was the last time that you asked the Lord for something that tested your faith? Something completely impossible without him? Or perhaps put yourself in a situation knowing it would stretch your faith. We need this testing to grow just as much as Peter did. Sometimes that means that we need to choose to step into a situation knowing that God will meet us there. As I was just reflecting over these last couple of weeks, that phrase audacious request kept playing over and over in my mind. And the Lord said to me, when was your last audacious request of me? And sadly, he's convicted me that it was 2006, which is far too long ago. (laughs) But in 2006, the sister of a close friend of mine uh, was carrying a, a baby boy. And at 40 weeks, for no apparent reason, his heart stopped beating. And she had to go through the delivery of that baby. Um, It was obviously an incredibly emotional time. But the Lord was absolutely with her. It was quite incredible as they gathered as a family and just worshipped God through that experience. But several days later, after Bub had been born and um, they had actually buried him, they realised that something had been put in the coffin that shouldn't have been. And so the decision was made to exhume the coffin and get this item back. And at that time, the mother of the baby felt really convicted that this was God's opportunity to raise her son back to life. And this is, I've actually never told anybody this story. I thought this might happen. And so on that day, the father of the baby went to the grave and he was there for the exhumation. And there was a team of us in Melbourne and overseas that was praying for this baby to be raised back to life. Sadly, it didn't happen. I remember getting up at five o'clock in the morning or something with the time differences and just praying and asking the Lord for him to work in a mighty way. And then the news came through that hadn't happened and I remember sitting with him for an hour or so afterwards and just talking to him and saying, Lord, what's, what's this about? What's going on? And he spoke a number of things into my heart that morning. But the journey of getting to that place of 
being willing to step out and ask, for God, ask God to do something so audacious as to raise somebody to life that has been dead and buried for several days, that hasn't left me. I remember the day before going to Kurong and buying any DVD I could find that was stories of people being raised back to life. I watched the story of Daniel Ekachuku, I can't tell you how many times, like I don't know if you've seen that DVD called Raised to Life, but the faith that God built in me in that experience to actually step out and to ask him boldly to do something that was so completely beyond me. And even though it didn't happen, I can tell you that it stretched my faith. It stirred up something in me. And I saw God's hand in what he did um, during that time. And I share that story with you because I feel like as a community, that is where God is leading us. He's asking us to be audacious. The scriptures say that you don't have because you don't ask in James. And I really believe that God is saying to us that he wants to stretch our faith just like he stretched Peter's. And he wants to stretch it so that we will ask him for audacious things and not shrink back. The third thing, which you may not have expected as a lesson from the light of, of Peter, is that his character development was critical. It's one of the biggest areas of growth we see in Peter's life. In many of the early accounts we read of Peter, he simply didn't have the maturity to follow through on his intentions. He was very quick to say yes and to be there in the moment, but he couldn't actually stay the course. Think of a number of times where he did things like that. Uh, so when he took his eyes off Jesus when he was working on the water, just as we talked about, telling Jesus that there was no way that he was going to die, falling asleep in the garden while Jesus prayed, cutting off the soldier's ear, denying Jesus, impatience, pride, ego, selfishness, doubt, fear, all character issues that he needed to deal with. But through it all, he remained teachable. He took, he, he took Jesus' rebukes, he stayed close to Jesus and continued to learn from him, still with a heart to be obedient. And he grew in faith and obedience to Jesus so that his character grew and he became more like him. This was further empowered then when he received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Joel asked the question a few weeks ago, what comes out of us when we are squeezed? I love that question. Is it Jesus or is it other stuff? Asking the Lord about what he wants to work on in our character is a guaranteed way to hear from him. It's the question that he answers quickly. This is a question that he doesn't hesitate to answer because he knows that it affects so many aspects of our life, particularly our relationships, but also how we represent Jesus to those around us. Taking the time to work on our own character issues is crucial if we want to grow as disciples. It's far better that we learn to manage ourselves than the Lord needing to teach us in one of those times of character building that we all so love. The fourth thing is about identity. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 17, again, it's another well-known passage in, Jesus, in um, Peter's journey. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Peter steps up here to speak on behalf of the twelve. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The declaration is a significant moment in Peter's journey. It's a direct declaration of faith and devotion. It showed that Peter believed him to be the Messiah, the Saviour, the fulfilment of the prophecies he'd read about since he was a child, that he was indeed the Son of God and therefore divine in nature and character. Every interaction with him from this point on would be framed by this revelation. This declaration is so significant that Jesus could now begin to reveal that he was going to die. Now that the disciples clearly understood who he was, they were ready to hear what was to come. If they had thought that he was merely a man, they couldn't have borne it. And so the question is just as relative for us now as it was for Peter then. What is your perspective? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he your friend? Is he your brother? Is he your healer? Is he your protector? Is he your Lord? How you answer that question will determine how you approach him. It will define your relationship with him and will affect how you portray him to others, knowing that who Jesus is to you is critical information. The fifth thing, and I think perhaps for me has been the most significant in terms of piecing together Peter's journey, is this the process that he went through of testing and dying to himself. Something incredibly significant happened to Peter in the 51 days between the Last Supper and Pentecost. Something so significant that there's so little actually talked about that process inside of Scripture. But what we can do is we can actually look at the things that happened and then we can look at the fruit of what happened to actually understand the outworking of all that he experienced in that time. And so I want to take the time this morning to look at some of these scriptures. So I'm going to bring up all of them. So they're mostly in Luke and they're mostly in chapters 22 and 24. So they're quite close by to each other. But I think this journey of Peter's is really significant. So it starts with firstly Jesus prophesying that Peter was going to be tested. It says that Satan has asked to sift you, Peter. But then Jesus goes on to say, but I have prayed for you. So we'll look at that a little bit more. Then Peter denies Jesus on the way to the cross, as most of us would be familiar with. Jesus is actually crucified, and then he's resurrected, and he appears to Peter as the first apostle that he appears to. Despite the fact that Peter had denied him, Jesus, in his grace, goes to Peter first of the twelve. And then he appears to him a second time, again on the beach. So let's flip over to these verses. Luke 22. Okay, so verse 31 says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail and that when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And he replied, Lord, I am ready to go to prison with you and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. So then the actual denial takes place in Luke chapter 22, verses 54 onwards. Then seizing him, they led him away. It's Jesus that they're talking about and took him to the house of the high priest. Peter followed from a distance and some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, sat down together. Peter sat down with them. 
A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. But an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Can you imagine what that gaze was like? The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Then Jesus is actually crucified in Luke 24. And Peter waits to find out once and for all, was Jesus really who he said he was? I can't imagine what that three days must have been like for Peter. I'm going to jump to Luke 24, the next one down where it's Jesus appears to him. So Jesus appears to Peter as the first apostle. He'd appeared to the women and he'd appeared to um, another group, but this is the first time he actually appears to one of the 12. So verse 33, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem and there they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. We know nothing else about this exchange between Peter and Jesus other than it happened. But it speaks to the grace of Jesus that in our despair, and despite what Peter had done, he was the first disciple to see him after the resurrection. And then finally, Jesus appears to him, to the 12, or 11 by then, um, on the beach at John 21, chapter 15. And this is a really significant moment for Peter. A lot happens in this exchange. So John 21, verses 15 to 19. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you that when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. I love in that passage that Jesus gets him to make a declaration of love three times to counteract the three denials that he made earlier. I don't think we can begin to imagine what took place for Peter in those 51 days. The shock of being told that he would deny Jesus, then he actually does it. The guilt and the shame. Wanting, hoping, believing for the resurrection to come. What a long three days that must have been. The conversation that Jesus had with Peter immediately following his resurrection, being forgiven, forgiving himself. Jesus blessing him with another large catch of fish and then reinstating him as the shepherd of the believers. And then finally, Jesus prophesies Peter's death. So while it's impossible for us to know what went on for Peter in this time, we can see the outworking of it, the outworking of those experiences in Peter's life. 
He's come to a place of complete surrender to God's will. He has a small what about him moment when John's standing next to him and Jesus prophesies his death. But he doesn't protest. Jesus said earlier in Luke at the Last Supper that Satan had asked to sift Peter like wheat. The sifting process is a common refining process in the biblical times of separating the wheat and the chaff. Over these past weeks, I found myself asking the Lord about this and was reminded that he spoke to his disciples about wheat in another instance that night at the table. In John chapter 12, verses 23, Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternity. So whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Jesus drew the analogy between his own life and a kernel of wheat, that for it to produce the greatest harvest, he must die. Not only did he use the analogy to describe what was about to happen to himself, he extended it by saying, Anyone who loves their life will lose it, and whoever serves me must follow me. Jesus makes it very clear that the call to discipleship, the call to follow him, means giving up control of our lives and surrendering to him. It means giving up our goals and our ambitions and replacing them with his. That's what Jesus is asking of Peter on the beach that last time when he exhorts him to follow me. The end result for Peter is that it's no longer about himself He's no longer concerned about his own life like he was when he denied Jesus on the way to the cross. He's finally found something worth dying for. So what does it look like to die in Australia in 2017? If you were here a couple of weeks ago, it looks like a woman from Nary Warren who went on a journey of obedience of living on less so others can have more that led her to rescuing sex trafficking victims in Romania. It looks like a couple in their 60s from Warrigal who have chosen to live in a shed made of scraps with no mains electricity or running water in the gem fields of Queensland to be able to share the gospel with the thousands of people living there who don't want to be found. It looks like a couple in their 20s with a one-year-old son renting out their home in Melbourne, buying a one-way ticket to regional Thailand, not knowing anyone, committing a year to learning the language just so they can pray and share the gospel with local people in their own language. These guys know what it means to die, to hand over entire control of their lives to Jesus and his plans and purposes. Although Peter's journey continues on, we're going to pause in Acts chapter 2. For this is where we start to see the real Peter step forward. Bold, courageous, insightful, transformed, and completely sold out. We'll pick up the highlights starting in um, verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you know yourselves. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And if you want to skip down to verse 36, he just quotes a lot of Old Testament in between. 
Verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. Doesn't sound like a coward at that point. He sounds pretty fierce, convicted. So this has been a snapshot of Peter's journey of discipleship, how he grew in obedience faith, character, identity, and dying to himself, how he was transformed to be more like Jesus. As a result, thousands of people began that very same journey, firstly in Jerusalem and then together with the other apostles throughout the world. And so as we wrap up this morning, my question to you is, what is the Lord saying to you? Where do you see yourself in your own journey of discipleship? Which of these five areas is Jesus asking you to grow in? I really believe that for a number of us, it's that last one, that there are things in our life that Jesus is asking us to lay down. And in a number of cases, he's actually been asking us for quite some time, but we don't want to give it up. But today's the day. (laughs) And just as we sing this last song or just take some time to reflect we just love for you to ask that question. What is God saying to you? What area is he asking you to grow in in your own discipleship journey? As we bring this series to an end, what does it mean for you to be a disciple of Jesus? Father, I just want to thank you, Lord. For, I want to thank you for Peter's life. <laughs> Father, warts and all, I thank you for such a, a real account of his life that we can relate to even more than 2,000 years later. And Father, I want to ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would move amongst us, that you would come and move in our hearts and in our spirits and that you would show us what it is that you want from us this morning. Father, I believe with my whole heart that your word deserves a response. And so, Lord, I would ask this morning that you would speak to each one of us deep in our hearts and show us what that response is. And Lord, I ask that we would be obedient to that that we would be people that's first response is yes. So Father, I thank you for what you're doing amongst us this morning. I thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us the same, that it's your delight, Father, to see us grow and change to be more like Jesus. And Lord, that's our prayer this morning. So we thank you, Father, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.